<clears throat> Sampajanya. It is a um, interesting term. Uh, it is particularly underestimated, uh, generally at the expense of sati, or the other way around. <laughs> sati is elevated at the expense of sampajanya. Yeah? And it is a term that often occurs together with sati. The etymology is useful to understand. Janati means to know something. Pajanati means to know something thoroughly. Sampajanati means to uh, is a sort of a gathering movement, yeah, taking together, yeah, a thorough knowledge, a thorough knowing, taking things together. Yeah. So our um, gifted translators of the earlier generation have coined the term clear comprehension for this, and. It occurs many times. In fact, whenever in the Satipatthanas, sati as an adjective, satima is mentioned, uh, it is mentioned together with two other terms. One of them is atapi, ardor, energy, dedication, uh, or simply heat. Yeah. Uh, and the other one is sampajana, clearly comprehending. So, what does that mean? Uh, obviously something like that uh, clamors for definition and it clamors for mapping into our own experience. Yeah? As always when we have a nice term which we see, oh yeah, this is important. Uh, I wonder what that means. You know, How does that go with my experience? How would I call this? Yeah, it's generally the thought. How would I call this? Do I have this in my experience? Is it not... Is it so lofty that I don't have this? Then I obviously have no concept for it. Or do I already have it and have a different concept for it? Isn't it? That's the, the great task. If we read these texts, if we try to make sense, if we have a sense there's something precious there, we're trying to do two types of translation. The first one is from Pali into our native languages. And then the second one uh, is from... A, a sort of specialized use, which is technically maybe English or French or German, but somehow nobody quite knows what that actually is. Yeah. So, as you may know, Buddhists are famous for having written bad Sanskrit in the early days. Yeah. Indologists do not tire of making fun of bad Buddhist Sanskrit. Um, this is at the coming from a time when Buddhist authors were trying to um, adopt coming from the Pali or coming from an, an Indo-Aryan dialect and they try to join the Indian discourse, which some type of discourse, which um, in the first couple of centuries uh, of the first millennium started to take shape in Sanskrit. Now many of the Buddhist authors didn't speak Sanskrit very well. Their texts, their oral orally transmitted texts were not texts from Sanskrit. So they tried to Sanskritize them. And the uh, linguistic term for that is um, Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit. Yeah. Now, um, an observant English translator of Buddhist text has noted 
that he and some of his contemporaries often starting from Pali or from Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit end up with a sort of Buddhist hybrid English yeah as a result in other words we start having apparently accurate English terms for uh, points of Buddhist doctrine but nobody really knows what they mean yeah how would you know that behind the word aggregate you know what a kanda is or how that works or what you would use that for or uh, what a what a formation is yeah it's it's a you know suitably nondescript term for uh, one of the naughtiest buddhist concepts called sankara uh, and you end up translating this as formation which is just about as incomprehensible as saying sankara yeah to somebody who doesn't have the Buddhist jargon. Uh, you know, Sankara is not less comprehensible than formation. Yeah. And you could add many, many, many terms to that list. So Buddhist hybrid English is as much a problem as Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit. So the first translation is obviously from a, a source text into a, a target language, namely our native languages. And then the second translation, which is equally important, it is from uh, generally a slightly quirky way of referring to Buddhist things in our native tongues, actually into the language in which we think about ourselves and in which we converse about our experience. Yeah. So there's two translations needed. So, Sampajanya, we need to translate it, we need to map this with our experience. Let us look at the textual sources. There are three different definitions of Sampajanya in the text. We know that Sampajanya is one is listed under the body contemplations in the Satipatthana. So, together with posture, together with mindfulness of breathing, uh, together with uh, identifying and discerning elements together with the contemplation of organs and the, or the unattractiveness of organ contemplations and the charnel ground contemplations, we have the practices of Sampajanya. So let me read you three small segments. I suspect I need, you know, I, if I was younger I could probably decipher that, but since I've left my glasses behind and what is this? Oh, fabulous idea! Yeah, yeah. I still have, I still have to. Uh, <laughs> I seem to be still a little bit shy of actually taking them along. I seem to be still in denial here. This works. This works. Ah, go ahead. It's that probably doesn't harm. Lest I misrepresent the awakened one here. So we have three, thank you, great. That's really cute. We have three um, uh, small snippets in differing places one from the Samyutta Nikaya, from the connected discourses, one from the Anguttara, the numerical discourses, one from, uh, and a third one also from the Samyutta, from the Vedana Samyutta. And how monks is a monk clearly comprehending. Here, in walking to and fro, he practices clear comprehension. In looking ahead and looking aside, he practices clear comprehension. In bending and stretching, 
he practices clear comprehension. In using robes and bowl, he practices clear comprehension. In eating, drinking, chewing and tasting. In excreting and urinating. In walking, standing, sitting, sleeping. Walking, speaking and being silent, he practices clear comprehension. Yeah? So, what we discern here is, this is obviously something that takes place not just on our meditation cushion. Yeah? That is an important thing to take home with. Then it is something that has to do with activity. Yeah. Let's say s sleeping may be borderline there, but uh, being silent, yeah, he does that, clearly comprehending. That is something to contemplate. So the majority of these activities are precisely that. Activities, they are not... Um, relegated to what we would call formal meditation practice, and they have something to do with our bodies, quite clearly. Yeah. Uh, many of them refer to movement, some refer to body function, um, some refer to activities like eating, drinking, chewing, uh, postures, standing, sitting, sleeping, walking, Speaking and being silent, he practices clear comprehension. Yeah. So, being fully aware, clearly comprehending. Um, other interpretation. Here, Ananda, a nun is mindful as she walks to, she is mindful as she walks fro, she is mindful as she stands, she is mindful as she sits, she is mindful as she lies down, she is mindful as she sets to work. This ananda is a mode of recollection that, when developed and made much of in this way, leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. Yeah. It's an interesting one, yeah? It's regressive. So again, we have bodily movement, we have activity, uh, purposeful activity and we are told that if this takes place it leads to mindfulness and to the continuation of clear comprehension. I could bring that together with the first one, that's not difficult. The last one, and which monks is the development of unification that when developed and made much of leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. Here, monks, feelings are known as they arise. Feelings are known as they endure. Feelings are known as they vanish. These are Vedana. So in my language, this would be feeling tone. Is known as it arises, feeling tone. Is known as it endures, feeling tone. Is known as it vanishes. Perceptions are known as they arise. Perceptions are known as they endure. Perceptions are known as they vanish. Thoughts are known as they arise. Thoughts are known as they endure. Thoughts are known as they vanish. So we have uh, an understanding of clear comprehension now as that which knows the lakanas, as that which knows um, the... Technically, it's, it's not straight the characteristics of uh, sankharas, but it's one of the features of sankharas which are known to have a beginning they change while they endure and they disappear yeah. that's an interesting statement and 
Clear comprehension is defined as something that knows knows when things arise as they arise, uh, when they endure, that they endure, and when they vanish, that they vanish. So we have clear comprehension uh, referenced not to an activity, but to uh, a grasp, a mode, a perspective on that process, process of experience, here outlined with thoughts, with perceptions, and with Vedana, with feeling tone. Now that is something the meditator, even the meditator on the mat and the cushion, can, I think, consider with great gain. That in you which knows that things arise when they arise, that they endure when they transform themselves while staying present, and that they vanish when they vanish, is obviously likened to uh, that faculty of clearly comprehending. If we look around, um, there's a couple of other uh, usages of the term Sampajanya. I just give you the most fanciful ones. Um, in one in one discourse in the Diganikaya, it is uh, used to consciously experience one's own life as an embryo in the womb. Hey perinatal psychotherapists in here. Yeah. This is an interesting concept. Yeah. Diganikaya. In one instance, in the middle length thing, um, clear comprehension is used as the quality of deliberateness when somebody lies. Also the, uh, the discipline, the monastic discipline uses the term yeah, uh, Sampajano to refer to the quality of deliberateness in uttering a lie. So when a lie is uttered or an untruth is uttered, that which makes it an offense is the quality of sampajano, knowingly and deliberately uh, making such a lie. Yeah. So I think the term knowingly in English comes pretty close to this. Um, A small discourse in the Anguttara and the numerical sayings rec recommends clear comprehension as, an, as a practice for overcoming unwholesomeness and establishing wholesomeness. Yeah, that again would map to something like having a practical knowledge of. There is a, or was a famous Thai uh, meditation teacher, um, not just meditation teacher, but also teacher of many other wondrous things. Uh, his name was uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa. He single, more or less single-handedly from the early 60s onward, um, helped transform Buddhist teachings for the middle classes, middle class, educated middle classes in Thailand were not particularly famous for being interested in Buddhist teachings, yeah? like in many uh, Buddhist countries, uh, there is a generally a practice segment, for a very small segment of contemplative practitioners, and then there is a lot of conventional Buddhism. And uh, one of the features of Thai Buddhism is that it had great difficulties actually communicating to its educated middle classes for a long time. Many um, educated people in Thailand in, the, in those days would consider Buddhism, this is something for for grandmothers, basically, yeah, it's not for people who practice. It's not of relevance. It's kind of a solace-giving 
activity people do when they don't have jobs, when they don't have kids to look after, when they when they have nothing better to do. You know, it's better than just chewing betel nut and gambling. So you might as well go to the monastery. Don't do any harm there. Yeah. Uh, I'm a bit sarcastic, which sometimes I am, but uh, unfortunately. I'm a lot more true in this than I would wish I was, to be honest with you. And it is uh, the merit of men like Ajahn Puddhadasa to have uh, rattled many Thai people and shaken them out of their trees of uh, complacency and made Buddhist teaching relevant to people who were smart, who were educated, and who were part of a segment that monastic communities did not easily reach anymore. So Ajahn Buddhadasa has uh, has been a staunch uh, has been a staunch meditator. He's written excellent books on Anapanasati. He has uh, been a great champion of the discourses of the Buddha. He has uh, read the Tipitaka front to back, and he has uh, commented, interpreted, and used many many unknown teachings in. Uh, buried somewhere in the depth of the Pali Canon and has put them to great practical use and conveyed them to uh, generations of uh, Thai uh, teachers, Thai civil servants, Thai judges. And uh, one of the people influenced by Ajahn Buddhadasa's teaching was one of my teachers, although he was a monk up at Ajahn Chah's monastery where people spoke Lao dialect. Uh, he actually read Ajahn Buddhadasa's teachings, which were printed in central Thai language, which was easier. There were learning devices for learning central Thai. There are, I think, still no learning devices to learn actually the Lao dialect, which is spoken by a grand segment of the northeastern Thai population. So my teacher, Ajahn Suedo, <coughs> had uh, read while living up in the northeast, being surrounded by Lao or Isan-speaking monks, and foremost his teacher, Ajahn Chah, he was actually reading Ajahn Buddhadasa's books, and found, uh, as he told me once, uh, found him in some way a lot more accessible, because he could actually understand that language. He had learned Thai, but that still didn't help him to understand the very earthy uh, dialect of the northeast Thai people, who... Uh, you know, for you this may be very close by and you're spoiled in a country that far and across uh, speaks English, basically. If you come from where I come from, then you, you know, if your language is spoken and understood for 30 kilometers in this direction and in that, you're lucky. You know? So in Thailand, uh, a large chunk of where the forest tradition sits is the north and the northeast of the country, which traditionally has been settled by people who have moved into that area later than uh, central Thai population. And because they have moved in later and come from a different corner, namely from Laos, they have kept some of their Lao dialect, which is particularly incomprehensible if you go and live there as a Westerner. It's colorful, it's earthy, it's full of wild sounds and there are no books to learn it. You know? So you only learn it when you're actually living there. And I think my uh, teacher, uh, patient but probably occasionally frustrated uh, with his surrounding language, took refuge in central Thai books, and some of them were Ajahn Buddhadasa's books. So he was 
in his understanding of Buddhism and in his later teaching of Buddhism, particularly when he was in the West, was strongly influenced by Ajahn Buddha Dasa, although he, does, he didn't live at his monastery. So Ajahn Buddha Dasa, after this preamble, Ajahn Buddha Dasa refers to Sampajanya as wisdom in action. Yeah? It's the kind of wisdom that is um, tactic. It, when you know, big wisdom, panya, is strategic, then wisdom, sampajanya, is, it's the sort of wisdom that helps you to get something done, to get something accomplished, to get out of the pickle. To, um, it's pragmatic. Yeah, it's very pragmatic wisdom. And um, this, this makes sense. Yeah. Um, he says you have basically four types of, uh, he calls them comrade, comrade dharmas. <laughs> I didn't put it as I had, uh, he was accused of many things in Thailand. One of them was dabbling with the Christian, which is, you know, heresy. Uh, in a country that combines Buddhism, monarchy, and being Thai, uh, basically being a Christian means you're a traitor. And uh, you know, 350 years of largely futile Christian missionary work in Thailand have um, have uh, supported Thais in their perception that being Thai basically means Buddhism. They can often not keep this apart. What is Thai culture and what is Buddhist teaching? If you're growing up there, this is quite difficult to distinguish. Um, uh, he also was interested in some aspect of Chinese Buddhism, and because he had some Chinese ancestry, like many Thai people, um, about 10% of them, he, um, he was accused of smuggling in uh, Mahayana Buddhist ideas into Thai Buddhism. And then largely, lastly, he was accused of being a communist, which in Thailand, you know, is, again, is not a political denomination. It's, it's, this is, uh, being a communist in Thailand is worse than having been a communist here in the McCarthy era. Yeah? So it's basically, you want to kill the king. Yeah? You want to destroy the sasana. You want, you know, being a communist in Thailand, you have to understand Thailand was surrounded by countries who have fallen to communism in one way or the other, and all of these countries had their catastrophes. You know, in the north you have Laos, which completes sweep over uh, meant uh, uh, many refugees from Laos came to Thailand. Then you had Cambodia, which was, you know was decimated by a third of its population by communists. Then you had Vietnam, and so being a communist in in Thailand was not something in the realm of political ideology, it was something in the realm of morals. Yeah? Okay? This is not like in Europe or even in America. It's, it's, you're a demon if you're doing this. You want to bring the country down. You want to get rid of the king. You want re revolution. You want bad things. So, um, many people in Thailand have looked with great suspicion upon Ajahn Buddha Dasa's teaching also uh, have looked upon his popularity and it has taken many many years till say some of the more conservative segments of the forest tradition um, have been willing to listen to him in some way and he just lived in his monastery taught and didn't move so generations of monks and nuns and also 
uh, visitors, first Thai people, and then increasing streams of Western disciples have visited his monastery, benefited from his teaching, started to read his book when he started to have Western disciples. Some of his stuff was translated, and um, he is one of the few Thai teachers whom you probably have reasonable easy access to in English. Parenthesis closed. <laughs> Sampajanyas, in his understanding, four comrade dhammas, yeah, that's what he called them. And the four comrade dhammas for the contemplative practitioner are mindfulness, sati, stillness of mind, calm, samadhi, sampajanya, wisdom in action, um, and panya, wisdom proper. These four dharmas, uh, if you have those as allies, then nothing can really go wrong with your practice, he felt. He kept reiterating these four uh, dharmas as companions uh, that will protect you, that will help you, that are your best allies. So, clear comprehension, creating lateral awareness, connecting to value, connecting to context, sati, establishing the relationship, panya, the activity of understanding, and samadhi, uh, that is that which gives your consideration and your contemplation the necessary weight. Yeah. Samadhi is that which, if you have an axe, yeah, gives your axe the weight. The axe doesn't just need the sharpness, it also needs the weight. Yeah? The images from one of my friends, Ajahn Chandaku, who has written a paper um, about the relationship between insight and um, sam samatha, stillness or unification of mind, and he has likened this um, to the relationship between the sharpness of a razor blade and the weight of an axe. Yeah? The axe, for it to work properly, doesn't just need to be sharp, it also needs to have some oomph. Yeah? And the oomph comes from the weight. So, Samatha, in Ajahn Buddhadasa's understanding, brings the weightiness of mental calm to the wisdom in action. Yeah. Good. There are some Practical, thank you. There are some interesting commentarial elaborations on Sampajanya, on clear comprehension. Um, and I thought of sharing those with you because they, they're very terse and I believe quite pertinent to our stage of practice. We uh, find in the notion of a comprehension that is applicable something very very versatile in our meditative practice, in our contemplative encounter with our own minds. So these commentarial interpretations speak of four different types of Sampajanya. Let me name them. The first one is called Saataka Sampajanya, a clear comprehension connected with the goal. It clearly and squarely asks, what is the purpose of my doings? Yeah. This connection 
is not something you can really do in your meditation practice. This is something you need to have in some way clarified as a Buddhist practitioner in your life. You need to somehow have identified things worthy of pursuing in your life. In other words, you need to have identified values. Preferably values long-term, mid-term, short-term. Depending on where you are, uh, these may be quite um, quite different. You know? Long-term, freeing myself and minimizing suffering for this being and other beings in the world. You know? Lofty ideal, making this world a better place, minimizing suffering, including the suffering of my own heart, uh, but definitely not excluding the suffering of other beings. So this is a a goal for a uh, Buddhist practitioner. Um, understanding things as deeply as possible. Seeking a transformative understanding. Not the most detailed understanding, but seeking transformative understanding. That would be a, such a goal. Midterm. Um, I want to survive this retreat. Okay? <laughs> Short term. Uh, not fall asleep during this talk. Yeah, This may be my long-term minimizing suffering and realizing awakening, mid-term surviving this retreat without knee damage or without going mad, short-term not keeling off here while he's talking. Yeah? This was a joke, okay? It may sometimes help to layer our goals simply because we can pace ourselves better. Yeah. That's not something we can do or we, in, we should do during our meditation practice. It's something we should do in our lives. It's something we should contemplate before we uh, sit down on retreat. Yeah. But clarify what is worthy in my life, where I want to dedicate my energies to, what seems a good way of getting older, how I would like to be when I die, uh, how to go from here until death. Yeah, this seems a good question to ask. And this informs some of my goals. It identifies learning edges. It is likely not to turn out as you plan, and you may understand that some of the way you have framed your challenge or your task uh, obviously mirrors your lack of understanding, or as you grow on the path, you will understand your vision of a goal also will grow, hopefully, with that change in you. Uh, your notion of how you would be or what you would like to um, find uh, also grows along. However, it is helpful <coughs> because it uh, helps you immediately uh, with the second type of uh, Sampajanya, which is called Sapaya Sampajanya, uh, which uh, has the word Upaya in it, the, the word for skillful means. Yeah. The second of the Sampajanya asks for a reference of efficiency appropriateness. It asks whether it works. Yeah. So with the second type of Sampajanya, you're asking not just after your goals 
and your uh, visions and the big stuff. Uh, the second one, you're asking whether what you intend to do, preferably in you know short, mid, long term, whether what you're actually doing does the job, whether you're moving towards or whether you're moving away, whether what you have engaged in is instrumental in bringing about what your vision of a goal is, whether it works, whether the tools seem appropriate, whether you exaggerate or whether they are inefficient. That's an, imp that's an important question. Does what I intend to do and what I intend to bring about actually happen? Do I move towards this? Or do I not approach? Do I need to change my kit? Do I need to change my tool set? Um, am I unrealistic in the assessment of what the challenge is, what the hindrance is, what I'm actually uh, battling with or what I'm working against? This is an interesting question. So Sampajanya, the second one, the Sapaya Sampajanya asks, can we make this effective? Now you understand, effectiveness in itself is not a value. Yeah? But uh, yeah, people who glorify effectiveness uh, run grave dangers. Yeah? Instead of asking the value question, only asking the effectiveness question uh, can leave you to some can lead you to some highly unethical pursuits. But obviously, the effectiveness question here is connected to the value question. Yeah. The third of the Sampajanyas, it's called Gochara Sampajanya. Um, Go is a cow, Chara is where the cow is grazing. That's the way old traditions uh, which live of agriculture tend to derive their analogies. They they refer to a domain in terms of a meadow. That's where the cows are grazing, where, where the cows are walking. Yeah? So they ask, what is the grazing of your meditative practice? You know, where, where does your mind graze when you meditate? What kind of meadow have you given your mind to practice on? So in other words, what is my kamatana? What is my domain of meditative practice. What am I actually doing when I sit down and meditate? Do I just wait and hope something dramatic happens? Uh, and then feel slightly sad if it didn't? Or feel slightly doubtful that it didn't? Or slightly maudlin and think, well, if I sat you know, not in the lowlands of Western Mass, but maybe in the Himalayas then, you know, higher up where the air is better and the light is cleaner and pollution and so many Tibetan oh, Mahasiddhas have lived, you know. Maybe if I would tread on Padmasambhava's earth, you know, things would be easier for me. Or maybe if I eat sticky rice, you know, all these Thai Arahants, they've all been reared on sticky rice, you know. How can you, how can you get awakened on porridge? You know, what sort of idea is this? What you need is sticky rice. Maybe you have such uh, ideas, or maybe not so childish ones, but uh, you get the gist. So sometimes we have unrealistic expectations 
we're not clear. We're hoping for things or we, we have some established, some notion of mindfulness that gets me into a particular rut. I have to be mindful of things and then when I don't get the things I would actually like or I find wholesome, I'm, I'm just basically hovering there, being mindful of them and hoping they would stop, you know? but actually without tools to intervene. So there's a brand of mindfulness teaching which basically makes me an observer of my practice, of my mind. And, you know, some, on good days this may be very very powerful. You just observe and the mind not being fed with unwholesome stuff or not being uh, titillated in some way, it kind of calms down. And so you're mindful initially of hindrances and then if you don't feed them, you're becoming increasingly mindful of how things become calm. You're mindful of the distance, you're mindful of the perspective and things work well. But sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes it's a tiger ride, isn't it? You're kind of, and you keep being mindful of difficult stuff, uh, and you, your response to the difficult stuff is not like you think you should respond to difficult stuff. A, you didn't choose the difficult stuff. B, you really don't like how you respond to it. C, you're observing it, but you're kind of getting roped into what you actually wanted to observe, and it's clearly not working. Yeah? So sometimes we have made ourselves strangely helpless in meditation, as if observation and distancing is the only strategy we have in meditation practice. Sometimes people like myself are, are to blame for this because they tell you to watch your breath, to watch your mind, to observe, to witness, to step, take a few steps back, to look at things clearly, to have some distance, to acknowledge perspective, you know, all the stuff which helps me dis or de-identify from the content of experience. And that's a useful, powerful tool. But it's not the only tool. You know, if we look at the encouragement to practice sati in the suttas, there's all kinds of action going on there. You know, he, he takes something to non-becoming. You know, this sounds not just like observing. You know, he takes it there and makes sure it is taken to disappearance. You know? Non-becoming is a very polite way of saying you make it disappear. Yeah? He does not give permission or consent for something to take root. He, uh, he intervenes. He replaces something which is unwholesome with something which is wholesome. So if we look at the suttas, we have a lot of encouragement to do things rather than just, just observe and wait till it stops. So sometimes it is necessary to bring to mind that we actually have a whole toolkit. We have to talk about these differing forms of sati in another evening. So the third of those sampajanyas asks us to clarify what specific tool set comes to application right now in my practice. Simple. Do I do metta? Do I do anapanasati? Where do I do anapanasati? Uh, is it big, the area I'm feeling? Is it small? Um, have I used questions? Am I counting? Am I following breaths? Am I uh, taking note of particular aspects of the breathing? So it asks us to be precise in our task. Yeah? Uh, this third Sampajanya has a, a, a second part. And that second part refers to 
practice when I'm not in a formal meditative situation. The first point refers to what does my formal practice actually consist of. In other words, you make clear to yourself what your plan A is and what your plan B is. The second point refers to uh, is a magic little question which helps you to turn any situation you're in into a practice situation. So it asks, the situation I happen to be in right now, how could I turn this situation into a practice situation? Maybe you can't do samatha practice. Yeah? If you're going with your kids to the zoo, this is maybe not the moment to you know, turn your kids and all animals and all the visitors in the zoo into meditation hindrances and trying to you know, focus your attention on a small place and absorb with this. This may not be the most appropriate and kind thing to do. So the second point of the third, Sampajanya asks you, how can I transform where I am right now? How can I transform this into a practice in which I cultivate some powerful virtue? This may not be samatha, it may be patience. It may be curiosity. It may be non-reactiveness. It may be letting your mind drift open and just see where it moves and be interested and smile and not go there but look at the impulse that moves. Or it may be um, diligent application. It may be that you do not give in to doubt. Yeah. That you steadfastly refuse to negotiate your doubts. Yeah. That may be a practice you can do. Yes, you're occurring, my doubt, but right now <clears throat> I have no office hours. Yeah. If you really... If you're really serious, see me after seven tonight. Right now, I'm actually ma I'm actually doing something with all my focus. You know, and you keep doing this. You're not asking the question that would lead you to stop doing what you're doing. Maybe that is the practice you can do, or maybe the practice is just to hold an unpleasant experience and let it and stop it from going into an unpleasant mood. Yeah. You cannot change the unpleasant experience, but you can change that it just goes from one step to the next step into an unpleasant reactive mood. Maybe that is your practice. You're letting go. Not once, heroically, but 20 minutes, you know, en bloc, keep letting go. <laughs> when it creeps back up on you, you keep letting it go. Yeah, that's, that's different. We don't envisage, we don't imagine letting go that way. Yeah, we imagine letting go, kind of on an out breath, uh, generous, grand gesture of release, and then you know something final, finite, and transformative has taken place. But letting go sometimes it's just kind of like you know it's creeping back up on you, and you keep letting it go, and it doesn't feel dramatically relieving. So the third, sampajanya, or its second part helps me transform any situation in my life into a situation in which I can practice something wholesome. This is a really great practice. This is really grand practice. You're taking it out of the meditation hall into your life. The fourth of the Sampajanyas is called Asamoha Sampajanya, the clear comprehension of non-confusion and what it does, it helps you orient towards presence. It says, 
do I see change here? Do I see conditionality? Do I see pain? Um, do I see that I, I'm not the owner of this? It also asks us not to lose our heart, not to lose our body, um, not to lose our humor. Um, it allows me to not get it right. Okay, The fourth Sampajanya is basically the permission to not be perfect in the first three ones. It's the one saving grace that allows me, that realizes, ah, yeah, this struggling human being tries. It tries hard. Yeah, Let's give him credit for that. It's not perfect, but he's trying. He's trying to orient. He's trying to grapple with this. He's trying the best. He's using all his wits to get this to work. Yeah? And we want to give him credit for that. We're not going to blame. We're not going to judge. We're orienting. Where is the body? What is happening? Can I acknowledge the lakanas, the characteristics? Particularly, can I acknowledge conditionality? This hasn't just fallen off the sky, out of the sky. It's some things have led to this. So in other words, we are turning, like good investigation, we're turning to that which supports the situation we are faced with. It's very simple. If your plants are wilting, <clears throat> you're not just spraying the leaves, you're watering their roots. Yeah? It's the leaves that are wilting, but actually what you water is the roots. Yeah? You're not watering the leaves. Although it's the leaves which say, I'm sad, I'm thirsty, help me. You don't go to the leaves, you go to the roots. That's a very simple example, knowing this connection. If you look at this plant, you recognize this is how it works. If you want to help it with water, uh, don't start with the leaves, start with the roots. Although the roots don't tell you it's dry, it's the leaves that tell you this. So, the fourth of the Sampajanyas, the Sampajanya of non-confusion, basically brings us back to the pattern of the four truths. Yeah. The four truths task, where does it hurt? Does that pain, does that dissatisfaction rest on conditions? Can these conditions be changed? Can they be given up? Do I want to give them up? Yeah. Maybe the honest question is no. The honest answer is no. Sometimes we say no. Sometimes we say no, I don't let go. I don't give up. If you've never met that part of your mind, then I have a feeling you you better ask again. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it just says no. I don't want to be enlightened. Leave me alone. I I just want to be left in peace. I want to have my bit. I want to sulk. And you recognize, okay, wow, fair enough. You, so you want to continue suffering, is that, yeah? And we back off a little bit and realize, fair enough, we're going to pay the price for this. Yeah. We have a choice. We can not let go. You know, sometimes letting go is gracious, you know. You kind of let go and sometimes it's kind of... It bends open your fingers, yeah, and you put up a good fight, and you're not easily letting go. And you have to go through this one. And you know what? You're better off if you have made a conscious decision not to let go. 
if you've never made a conscious decision not to let go, you will just feel like a victim. You will feel like you've never had a choice. Even if it's a bad choice, you're better off if you make it consciously than unconsciously. You know whom to blame when you've made it consciously. You know that you can own up much easier. It's psychology, psychologically a lot easier to own up with stuff you have botched. Yeah. If you've never, f if you if you feel you've never had a chance, you know you were kind of somehow dragged into something, and there was never a clear moment where you admitted to yourself that what you're doing now or what you're not doing has consequences which may be painful then you feel a lot more helpless than if you have made a choice and you come to the conclusion later on it was a bad choice this was this is easier it's easier learning so and obviously the the last part of those four tasks would be the whole package of the eightfold path yeah which in some way that pattern of the four truths is part of this last of the sampajanyas of non-confusion. Can I discern a way out here? What would help? Yeah. Sometimes this is that simple. It just translates, what would help here? What is needed here? So, contemplate uh, this enigmatic notion, sampajanati, to know something completely, to know and a knowing that takes things together as part of uh, the qualities of mind that bring contemplative exercise to fruition. One part, sati, establishing the relationship. Another part, sampajanya, establishing context, connection to value, connection to goals, connection to stuff you know from your experience. If you forget everything, please do not forget uh, the last, the third part of the Sampajanya definition, which is nose fe feeling tone as it arises, nose feeling tone as it endures, nose feeling tone when it vanishes, nose perceptions as they arise, nose perceptions as they endure, nose perceptions as they vanish, nose thoughts as they arise, those thoughts as they endure, those thoughts as they vanish. The simple knowing is already transformative. Maybe we forget that sometimes. The simple knowing already is the beginning of a transformative activity of mind. Good. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.